You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. You know what? You know what phrase is funny? Um, it's the phrase "doing the impossible." It's, it's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? Doing the impossible. Doing the impossible. It's well, the impossible can't be done. So how can anyone do the impossible, right? It's like saying the word bittersweet, right? Bittersweet, or there was a thunderous silence, right? Doesn't really doesn't really make sense. Today we're going to talk about doing the impossible. Can everyone say doing the impossible? Now we use the word impossible a bit lightly. I remember reading an article on Times um, Magazine a few, I think, years ago actually, and it was, a, it was an article about the UPS delivery, and it was advertised as this that they deliver at impossible speed. That was the article, and, and really, impossible speed—that doesn't really make sense, right? But we kind of use it lightly. We say this is impossible, but it's possible that we can achieve and do this. But today we're going to talk about that which is actually and really impossible, and about doing the really impossible. And really, that idea is a key concept in the Bible. Okay, this whole idea about the impossible being done. So this miracle, the feeding of five thousand, is one miracle. Now the other is the resurrection that's included in all four accounts of the gospel. Later on in this chapter, John. He, he records a long discourse or speech in which he explains, where Jesus explains the significance and the symbolism behind what this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 of itself and all that. But first, before we even get to that later on, here in the first part of this chapter, the emphasis is now about the meaning of the miracle, but on rather Jesus' relationship with his disciples. That's what this passage is about. The relationship that Jesus has with his disciples. This is about what Jesus wanted to teach them as they shared in the doing of this miraculous act, and so that's going to be our focus today. Amen. All right. So I got a couple points here to make. First is this: God has given us an impossible task. God has given us an impossible task. So let me ask you all this: Do you guys think that Jesus has a sense of humor? Huh? Yeah. I've heard a lot of people ask me that question, right? They asked me, like, Pastor, do you think Jesus is funny? Was Jesus a cool dude? Would he be my homie? Was he funny? Would the words of Jesus not only heal my soul but cause you to spew milk from your nose? Right? Was he a funny guy? Like, I don't know for sure. Right? I don't know for sure. But here's the thing. I mean, the outsiders of society—they all really seem to enjoy his company, right? They all really seem to enjoy his company, and those guys—they knew how to have a good time. So my assumption is that I think Jesus was probably hilarious, right? I, I really do. But more than my assumption, I think I see it here in this passage too. Now it's not Jesus telling a knock-knock joke, but I do see Jesus in kind of good nature ribbing his disciples to make a point. So to recap, okay, from what we just read today. Jesus, he wants to get away from from it all. So he goes up in the hills to the north of the Sea of Galilee. 
Jesus knew that things were, were changing, okay? Things were happening. The opposition, right, they didn't want Jesus. It was getting fiercer. It was getting more focused and more hostile on him. So Jesus, he needs some time with his disciples to prepare them for what was ahead, to talk to them about his dying. But in the crowd, they saw the miracles, didn't they? They've been following him. They tasted a little bit of that amazing glory of Jesus' ministry, and they were just kind of enraptured, enamored by what Jesus was doing. It was really cool. It was really thrilling. It was really exciting. And so this massive crowd, they're like, I'm not going to leave you alone, Jesus. So they followed him up into the hills. And so now, as Jesus sees the crowd coming, 5,000 men along with wives and children, perhaps then upwards of ten to 20,000 people, there's 10, 20,000 people coming here, and they're approaching Jesus. And then Jesus kind of nudges Philip and says, where are we going to buy food for these people? Can you see the humor in this? It's like in Jaws, right, when the guy says, I think we're going to need a bigger boat, right? Just picture Jesus' crew, this dozen, these dozen guys, they're poor. They're just wearing the clothes that they have. Their sandals are probably falling apart. These guys are dirty from just walking all day long. They're hungry too. And then a crowd that could fill the Wells Fargo Center in Philly is following Jesus. This massive crowd. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and says, so uh, how are we going to go feed them? How are we going to feed them? Any thoughts, guys? Hey, how much money you got, Peter? Uh, Jesus like, hey, I got a couple coins and some lint. How much can we gather together to feed this massive crowd? I mean, it's kind of like a dad joke, right? And I absolutely love it. It's a dad joke. Jesus had the first dad joke, right? I can just imagine Jesus' disciples come up to him and say, my Lord, my master, I'm hungry. And Jesus says, hey, hungry, I'm your Lord. <laughs> Stop, I will not, right? So why did Jesus go to Philip, though? Remember, Philip was from Bethsaida the closest town to that area. So Philip would actually know about the town. He would actually know what was in the town. He would actually know what was available. Philip would actually be the town expert. If there was food for all these people, the 20,000 people, then Philip would actually have the connections. He would actually know. But our text says in verse 6, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So can you imagine Jesus doing this? Hey, look, Philip. Look at this amazing, massive, just crazy, insane crowd. What are you going to do now, Philip? Philip, what's the game plan? Tell me. Well, Jesus, he actually asked the right man because Philip was a smart guy. Philip knew his stuff, and he was able to do the math in his head, and so he kind of quickly calculated, and he said, uh, Lord Jesus, um, it's not going to work. It's not going to work because even if we had 200 denarii, which was about eight months of wages, even with all that, all we could do is pretty much serve them hors d'oeuvres, just little appetizers, not enough to satisfy them. Jesus, it cannot be done. Look at the crowd. It cannot be done. Now, you see here, Jesus had just given the, his disciples an impossible task. What was his motive? Why did Jesus do this? Was it because he wanted to joke around? Was Jesus trying to publicly humiliate them? Was he trying to poke fun at the situation? I mean, there's absolutely no way that they could feed all these people. No way. It can't be done. It is impossible. Folks, this is not a message about see how they did it, and now you can do it too. It's not about that. It's not about now go pray for the winning lottery, and, and maybe something crazy will happen. God will bless you. No, no. The Bible brings us to this text today to press the point 
that more than the miracle, this was Jesus' objective from the beginning, okay? And that was this. Jesus wants to train his disciples to trust that God is big and that he wants to train you today that you know that God is big too. That was the purpose. Jesus wasn't saying, hey, if I can do this miracle, you can do many more. Uh, he was saying, I'm, I'm, trying to train, I'm trying to teach you something today. I'm trying to instruct you today. You know what our problem is? Turn to your neighbor and say, I know what your problem is. We are all so full of self-sufficiency. So much to the point that God, he can't use us for anything important until he teaches us to see things as they really are. That we're broken and that we need him. And let me tell you guys this. In this society and in this United States and in this world and this place in our culture where we say, you know what? You need to stand up. Put your, stick your nose up high. You know, it's okay. Push through it. I got to say this. The Bible says the complete opposite. It's okay to need God. It's okay to need God. It's okay. It's healthy to need God. Because the more you need him indicates actually a growing and maturing faith. Amen? Right? The more you say, Jesus, I need you, even for the small things to the big things, indicates that you have a relationship with him. And it's growing and it's flourishing. If you are at the end of your rope, if you have concluded that there is no answer to your problems, when you think that your only solution is to give up or to abandon or to simply quit and run away, listen well. It is at this point then in your life, maybe you're there right now, where you're thinking, I, 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 just, call, I just want to call it quits. I want to abandon my responsibilities. I want to just call it quits. If you're at this point in your life, this point of complete desperation, this point where you think that it is impossible to go on, that it's impossible to overcome this problem in life, let me tell you, it is here in your life right now, this moment, that God, he is shaping you. It is in this very moment of difficulty and of trials and whatever tribulation that you're facing that God, he's trying to shape you and mold you and just conform you to, into something that you won't expect. It's here that God is teaching you about the impossibility of these challenges because God, you say, he aims to teach you in this. Just as he taught Philip, the question is this now, will you be taught? Will you be humble enough to say, Jesus, teach me? Will you be humble enough to say, Jesus, instruct me. I don't know all the answers. I don't know why things happen. I don't know why I'm going through this. But Jesus, you're trying to teach me something. You're trying to teach me something. You see, this is how God worked in the past too. In verse 4, we're told that it's Passover time. You know what they're doing? They're celebrating Exodus from Egypt. Let me say this. Those were the impossible days. For 400 years, they were in slavery. No hope in sight. Day after day after day of just intense persecution and death. And yet from this impossible and bleak situation, over a million and a half people are evacuated from Egypt on foot in just one night. But that's impossible. Now here's the thing. They were caught between the Red Sea and the advancing angry Egyptian army that were bent on destroying them. Again, faced with an impossibility. Then they try to feed and water all those people in the wilderness. It is impossible. Look, let me say this. God has always given his people impossible tasks. And he's given you impossible tasks in your life today too. You know that? 
Don't think just because you check that salvation box saying, I'm good with the Lord Jesus, that if I were to die today, I'd be in heaven, that you think your life is going to be easy peasy. Uh-uh. You see, the path of sanctification and of spiritual growth for the Christian involves many impossible tasks. It does. He's giving you impossible tasks, guys. Tasks that may not look like the Red Sea, but certainly make you feel like you're just as trapped. Challenges that may not be like an angry army coming to kill you, but a situation where you feel threatened or victimized. There will always be impossible tasks in your life. And Jesus was not just set on saying, hey, look at what I can do, but rather he was preparing his disciples. He was preparing you and I for this impossible task that was to come and the more, that's, and, and, and the more that will come later on too in our lives. Go take the gospel to the whole world. That's impossible. Are you kidding me? Build a church out of people from different races and different languages and different classes. That's impossible. Build a people out of nobodies and then go make an impact and affect the world. That is impossible. Now, let me make it personal here, okay? Let's talk about some struggles. God, he is calling you or someone you know to hear his voice, but you or the person that you know, they're spiritually dead in the ears. They're spiritually dead, so it seems impossible, He calls you to lay aside the sin that you love so much, a sin that has captured your heart and mind for so many years. It seems impossible. How many times have you tried repenting of that? It seems impossible. He calls you to be released from guilt and despair that clings to your soul, the damages and wounds that have shaped your personality and your attitude and your outlook in life. It seems impossible. God, I'm just ruined. He calls you to love your enemies. To love and to pray for them. That's impossible. Are you kidding me? He calls you to love your wife enough to die for her in spite of her flaws, in spite of her attitude. It seems impossible. He calls you to submit to your husband while the whole world is telling you that you don't need a man and you certainly don't need to submit to one. It seems impossible. He calls us to raise children who are trained in godliness even though it seems like our children want nothing to do with God. It seems impossible. He still calls us to build a church and that tears down racial and financial and cultural walls, a church where blacks and white and Asians and rich and poor can all love one another like Jesus' love. You see, it seems impossible. He calls us to get the gospel out to over 7 billion people in the world, starting with those right outside our doors, starting with our coworkers, and starting with the store clerks and starting with our friends and family. It seems impossible. All these things in life, they seem like impossibilities, don't they? We say stuff like, oh, I'll never change, or he'll never change, or she'll never change, or my situation, it just gets from bad to worse. My situation, situation will never change. I'll never get better. Oh, there'll never be reconciliation. Or oh, my marriage will never improve with my spouse. Or I'll never get out of this debt. Or oh, my sins have entangled me for so long. I, that my sins have me for good. I can't get out of this. Or how can I make any type of impact in my community? I am just so unloved, and I, I'm an introvert, or whatever you want to call it. Life is filled with these impossibilities, but what we need to understand is that these impossibilities were placed in our lives. They didn't just happen. These aren't accidents. They're placed in our lives, and they serve a purpose greater than simply problems to be resolved, but they will ultimately act as an avenue of God's grace in shaping us to be more like his son. Man, 
if we get to face more impossibilities in our lives, but that will help us to look more like his son, then praise be to God. You hear me? If it's going to make you look more like Jesus, then you say, come bring it. Refine me. Challenge me. Push me. Pass my comfort zone. Jesus, do what you got to do. The more we mature in faith, the more our hearts will respond in gratitude to God in the midst of our impossible events or circumstances. So right now, with all these impossible scenarios in your life, much like Jesus asked Philip what he was going to do, Jesus also asks you today, so what are you going to do? What are you going to do now? Your relationship with the world, right now you're, you're, you got this dangerous tango with it. Jesus says, what are you going to do? The difficulty in your marriage or family where you just want to kind of leave and you want to abandon, you want to get out, Jesus says, what are you going to do? The mess of life that you have where it's just one issue after another, broken relationship, financial issue, whatever it is, Jesus says, what are you going to do? The challenges that we face as a church too, when, when sin brings in division and there's chaos and, and all this stuff, Jesus says, what are you going to do? As long as you think you can hack it, you think you can make it, then you're destined for failure. You'll say, just like Philip, well, logically, we'll need more money than this to get us through this. You might say, like Peter, well, Jesus, I already tried putting the net down that way. Or you might be like Thomas and say, well, I can't really believe it until I see it. You see, with this type of attitude that the impossibilities are somehow overcome by our doing, then the world will never be reached. When you think that you have the power and the strength to overcome the, the struggles and the impossibilities in your life, your family will never be lifted up. Your personal life will just resume as a ticking time bomb of anger, fear, insecurity. God has called us to an impossible task. Just know that. Accept that. But my second point is this. Jesus uses the insignificant to do the impossible. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're insignificant. I'm just kidding. Don't say that. <laughs> Even though it's true. <clears throat> so when we face a seemingly impossible situation, the last thing we want is trivial resources, right? Meaning this. For instance, let's say if you want to fix the top of a high-rise or skyscraper condo, whatever it is, you don't say this. Okay, we need to repair that. Guys, okay, let's go get some sticks and some stones and let's go rally up some neighborhood kids to kind of give us a hand, right? You don't do this. No way. You get the biggest cranes possible to get up there. You get the best quality build material to repair it. You need the excellent craftsmanship of, 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 of experts to come and complete this. Maybe at a time of, of national emergency. You see, the government doesn't go around asking for help using street surveys of the general public. No. Instead, in, in a national emergency, they're going to go call in the experts, so they, all the experts that they can find to get help. When you need an emergency heart surgery, you don't call in a first-year med school student. No, you call in the experienced surgeon who's been doing this for decades. So it would seem that in the face of an impossible situation that we would need extraordinary resources, right? That makes sense. But God, he doesn't think that way. In fact, Jesus uses the opposite. He uses the insignificant to do the impossible. And this is, what, this is what we see in this account of the miraculous feeding. So what did Jesus do? Now here's the thing. He didn't make manna fall from heaven, right? Even though he could have. 
He didn't make the people's hunger go away, even though he could have. He didn't enable Philip's favorite caterer to handle twice as many people as he thought they could, even though he could have. No, Jesus does none of those things. Listen well. Jesus didn't act without any resources. And Jesus did not use extraordinary resources either. Instead, he used the most insignificant resources to do this impossible task. So here we have Andrew. And he found a boy with a lunch for one. It was a poor man's lunch. Just some barley bread, which by the way, back then and even maybe today is considered the worst kind. I don't know. But back then it was the worst kind. It was the cheapest kind. It was the kind that people who couldn't afford anything better would buy. And along with that bread, the boy had pickled fish to help get the dry rolls down. So here we have a poor boy with a poor lunch facing an impossible situation. And yet with them, the Savior still managed to feed 20,000 people. That's how God works, and that's how God has always worked. You know, Moses, he complained to God. God, I am powerless. I have no power. I have no authority. No one will listen to me when I go to Egypt. When I face these mighty Egyptians, they're going to look down on me. They're going to scoff, and they're going to kick me out. And God said, hey, what's that in your hand? Oh, this? This is a stick, said Moses. It was just a stick, a staff, something that a person needs to walk with. And yet God, he used this stick to bring plagues on Egypt, to part the Red Sea, to bring water from a rock. Don't you see, God uses the insignificant to do the impossible. David, he was insignificant, that his, so insignificant in fact that his own father forgot to call him to meet Samuel. Goliath laughed at David that he would even meet with him in battle. But in God's hand, David and his sling, they accomplished what the entire army of Israel had found impossible. And that was what Jesus prepares disciples for. This little band of disciples, Philip, Andrew, Peter, James, John, so on, not one of them with more education, not one of them from a prominent family, not one of them with wealth, not one of them with any type of political power, this little tiny band of disciples did the works that Jesus did. They bore witness to his resurrection, they established the church as we know it, and they turned the world upside down all within one generation. Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, Not many of you were wise, influential, or of noble birth, but God, he chose the foolish, the weak, the lowly things, and the despised things, the things that are nothing, to shame the strong and to nullify the things that are something. You see, church, is now about the miracle. God can feed the 20,000 in a heartbeat. But it's about the glory of God. And what he wants to do through you. How amazing is that? This isn't about a believe in yourself type of message and the misinterpretation of that famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh -uh. Which many people have taken to be some sort of genie in a bottle situation where if you really want it, then you pray about it, then God will kind of grant your wish. That's not it. This is an encouragement for all of us today. This is an encouragement for all of us today here. That, this is God saying, do you see how big I am? 
This is God saying, don't you see how awesome my works are? Can't you see that nothing is above me? Here we have Jesus using this amazing miracle to teach us something. Jesus saying, I want to walk with you through the impossibilities of your life. I want to walk with you. And I want to show you who I am. I want you to know that there's nothing too big that I can't handle. Jesus is saying that the world has yet to see the greatness of his glory. And he wants to use you to be a part of that revealing. You know that Jesus is discipling you today? This pain and the struggle that you're going through right now. That he's using this to disciple you today. And maybe you feel like you have nothing. All you got are some barley loaves and some pickled fish. The great thing about our God is that he loves to meet us where we are, where we are, and what we're doing and with what little we have. So yes, the tasks that God has given us are impossible. It's true. <laughs> it is. But they're impossible for a reason. It's to train us and to help us to build trust in him. But even in those impossible tasks, here we see Jesus using this insignificant, the you and me, the nobodies, the Moseses, and the Davids, the ones who are overlooked, the ones who are bypassed, the ones who seem to just kind of blend into the wall, the ones who have such fears and insecurities, the ones who have such damaged lives. Are we talking about you? We're talking about us right now. The ones who carry such guilt and shame from their past, the ones who are sick and the ones who are broken, this is us. This is us, the church, that God desires to use to turn the world upside down. He does this by using us. As his church, the greatest message, message that we can send forth is the message of salvation. You know, we can go around and start parading and say, you know what, let's all just be reconciled and coexist and have peace in this and peace in that. Oh, let me tell you this. There is no unity outside of salvation in Christ Jesus. There is no peace outside of salvation in Christ Jesus. There is no joy without salvation in Jesus. And there is no such thing as goodness apart from Christ. Our message begins with Jesus and it ends with Jesus. He alone has done the impossible and he will continue to work with us through the impossibilities in our lives for us and through us. And ultimately for his glory. Brothers and sisters, may this year be filled with great miracles. But more importantly, I pray that this year be filled with greater obedience. Can I hear an amen to that? Greater obedience as we advance together in faith. So wherever you're at in life right now, however much you're struggling, don't stop now in pursuing our great Savior and Lord. Don't quit now, but keep pressing on. And you got a brother, sister who's struggling, you lift them up. You encourage them. You surround them. And you help press that, you, you, you encourage them to press on as well. This is the church. We are the church and your family is waiting. Your company is waiting. Your school is waiting. Folks, the world is waiting. And so by the grace of God, let's go forth and tackle the impossible in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we do so, you just wait and see. In your steady, mundane obedience and faithfulness day in and day out as you continue to tackle, tackle on the small tasks and the impossibilities of life. But do it in faith. and Do it in obedience. Do it in righteousness. Do it by fixing your eyes on the Lord Jesus. Then you will truly know and begin to experience what it means to enjoy him and make him known. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness.
We thank you for your word today as well. What an encouragement it is for us to know, Lord, that we are not left alone, but that even when it seems that we are alone with the difficult tasks that surround us or we feel suffocated or we feel like there is no end in sight, God, we thank you for your faithfulness that we can look back. And if we're sensitive enough that we can see, and Lord, as we trust enough that we can read from your word, that God, you're with us. And you'll never leave us. We thank you that there's, such, there, that there's a greater agenda than simply our own personal ambitions. But there are souls at stake. Your kingdom is at stake. And the fact that you would use such nobodies like me and like us to accomplish such an amazing divine agenda. God, thank you. Help us to know, Lord, that there's a greater role in our lives than simply just living and playing and then eating. And I also pray against any type of fears and insecurities that we may carry and think that we are just not good enough or that there's nothing that we could possibly contribute to this. It is true. We are not good enough, but by your grace, Lord, you have strengthened us and you have lifted us up and you have equipped us with everything that we need to play our part. So continue to lead us. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to give you guys just a moment here as, as we go into our last song, but before we do, just to pray. You've heard something today. Maybe it's different from what the person next to you heard, but you heard something today. And God, he is beckoning you to come. He is calling you right now to come forth. And maybe you don't understand. Then right now, pray, God, I want to understand. Maybe you don't believe, then this is when you say, God, help me to believe. Maybe right now you just don't trust. This is when you start praying, God, help me to trust. Give me faith, Lord. Let's take a moment and pray.